Hi, welcome to another Writers After Dark. We're here because good stories start with the writers, since wherever there's a story, someone's either making it up or writing it down. And my very special guest today is Professor Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, who has written a treatise, a, a, an archaeological study of fantasy and people of color, women of color especially, and it is such a delightful, delicious book. It's a deep dive. It's dense. It's dense. It's very dense. It is It is not a, a easy read for a lot of reasons. The bibliography alone is daunting. <laughs> 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 and this is exactly how I like my academic studies of fiction. Welcome, Ebony. Thank you so much for having me on, Summer. <laughs> this book, The Dark Fantastic, came out last summer or last fall? Um, it came out last May. Okay. May of 2019. I didn't find out about it until about September. <laughs> and I said, I must have this book. I must talk to this woman now. <laughs> but the the publicity people said that you were on sabbatical for the fall. And I said, okay, I'm patient. And then I read I read the chapters that were of most interest to me. The introduction and the uh the opening chapter literally got me emotions. I was in my feels. And then I looked at the bibliography and I said damn, there's no way I'm going to find all of these, much less read all of them. But it's a it's a task for later. Now, the question I really want to start out with is, if you're teaching at UPenn, how come the book came out through NYU? Because that's just weird. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. Yes, it is. Um, academic publishing is really weird. Um, academics are weird. <laughs> <laughs> so... Because academic publishers are small and specialized, what has happened is that each press specializes in just a few fields. So University of Pennsylvania Press um, specializes in fields that aren't mine. So, for instance, my friends in medieval studies um, consider Penn a top press in their field. However, Penn Press does not typically take manuscripts that are in media studies or in children's literature, or at least contemporary children's literature. The top presses in my field are Oxford University Press, um, New York University Press, University of Minnesota Press, and let's see, the University Press of Mississippi I think those are about it in Rutledge. So you need to go with one of those presses. Hmm. And so I um, sent the proposal six years ago to Oxford first because they're top ranked and um, Oxford um, kind of didn't understand the project. So then I wrote Henry Jenkins, who at the time was faculty at MIT. And since then, he's gone to USC Edinburgh. Um, and um, he was immediately interested in the project. And um, I um, started a conversation with him and his colleague, Karen Tongson. 
um, who we just received word is the first um, Asian American woman to receive um, the designation of full professor at her um, her University of Southern Car- uh, California um, school. So she's the first ever Asian American woman. And so they um, were my fairy godparents who <laughs> understood the project, um, grasped what I was trying to do, and took a chance on a pre-tenure uh, professor in a field that typically does not write books at the junior level, not academic books. So um, they understood my vision and they were able to shepherd it through. And everyone at NYU Press has been phenomenal um, throughout the whole process. So when you submitted it to NYU, was it this complete or close to finished version that we have, or did they just run with it on a detailed proposal? The latter. It was only a proposal and a dream. And since then, I've read proposals from folks in the humanities. Mine was okay. But um, I really do think that um, they wanted to have um, something on race and fan studies. Now, when I first contacted them in 2014, there just wasn't as much out And I was coming from an adjacent field. So I didn't consider myself um, a scholar of um, either fan studies or science fiction and fantasy studies. I was coming from children's literature in education, which is a a slightly adjacent, but a very different field. So um, since then, I've become an autodidact of a lot of other things, and I've met a lot of wonderful people along the way. Um, Thank you for the compliment on my bibliography, but (laughs) one of my reviewers who I really love, one of my best critical reviews, which was um, critical of the book, um, recommended it with reservations, mentioned a few people who I didn't cite. So half the review was noting all the people I didn't cite, and you know, you felt Oh, boy, you know, because uh, at a certain point, the editor who was working with me said, "Okay, at a certain point, you cannot cite every single thing that you have read over the past decade in this book. So um, I guess that line in academia among the entmoot about what to cite, how to cite, who to cite um, and what should be informing your work is always a really fine line. But I err on the side of um, oversighting because as a black woman, I believe that citation politics are so important, even when we're considering fan studies or science fiction and fantasy. Your lineage matters, who you're learning from matters, and giving credit really does matter. Yeah, you're right. Academia is kind of (laughs) weird. So how exactly, how long did it take for you to put this all together? Because you, you, you take a very critical observation of four particular fandoms, uh, Hunger Games, Harry Potter, BBC's Merlin, and Vampire Diaries. And I think while Merlin has the original source of uh from the legend med- from the medieval yeah. times but the other three are highly popular and sometimes polarizing fandoms they they're they're very opinionated and they are are, are not shy 
about <laughs> voicing those opinions all the time. What what made you narrow your focus down to those four? The reason why I chose those four were because um, I had to choose fandoms that I was intimately involved in and cared about and kind of knew inside out. And here I really need to extend my acknowledgements to something I didn't consider when I submitted the book. So oops, you know, <laughs> someone I left out of the acknowledgement. So, um, and this will answer your question. This is how I um, chose my text. So um, 13 years ago, when I was um, circling around toward a dissertation topic, um, academia looked different, science fiction and fantasy looked different, media and entertainment looked different. So um, 13 years ago was 2007. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that Obama would even be electable as president was pie in the sky. So that's just showing you how different of a time um, we were living in back then. There, you know, very few people had smartphones. Um, streaming was new. It was just a completely different world. I and got, so, yeah, 2007 was I got my iPod Touch. Someone gave me an iPod Touch as a gift, and it was first gen. Yes. <laughs> oh, you were fancy. I had an iPod Mini that I would take to the gym with me. But oh my goodness, and I thought I was being simply indulgent as a grad student getting one of those. But I it was, was like, oh. it, it was a gift. It was a All gift. Right. Uh, it was a gift, uh, sort of in in appreciation of the first uh, writing I ever sold. So I love it. <laughs> you deserve. You deserve. Yes. Absolutely. So. Um, Trying to pitch the Dark Fantastic as a project, because I had the seed of this back then, um, was impossible in 2007. And I don't blame my mentors at the University of Michigan for that. They didn't quite, no one could have foreseen where things were going to go, right? But what they did for me was I trained as um, a discourse analyst and an interactional ethnographer. So discourse analysis is sort of um, where you analyze um, human conversations. Um, because my doctorate is in English and, and education, I analyze conversations around different domains at a school. And the reason why I was looking at different domains is because my other dissertation co-chair um, was an interactional ethnographer. So I think your audience is probably familiar with ethnography. So, you know, anthropologists who go and study a setting for years and years at a time and learn something about the cultures in it. Well, interactional ethnography is where you're studying micro interaction. So you're studying the talk and action in different spaces. So what you'll do is instead of immersing yourself in a culture um, and learning the ins and outs of it, you'll consider um, a person, a place, or a phenomenon across different um, slices of space-time, you know, slice of sci-fi, slice of space-time. <laughs> so what I learned to do in my dissertation study was to think about a phenomenon um, across spaces. So if you're following, for instance, if you're following kids in a school, you wouldn't just look at what they're doing in the classroom. You would follow them from the classroom, you'd study that, then you go on the playground, you you know, look at that, interview them about that. Um, you go to the principal's office, you go home with them, you go to the mall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the theory behind it is you're acutely interested in context. 
and how differing contexts helps you understand how a phenomenon is shaped. That absolutely was the perspective that I brought into the Dark Fantastic because I wasn't trained um, fully as a literary critic. Um, my master's degree is in English, but that's pretty much where that training stopped. Um, since then, I've become a social scientist. So I'm interested in learning about um, a phenomenon over uh, and across several different contexts. So instead of in the book, um, analyzing race wherever it appeared in contemporary science fiction and fantasy, which is another kind of project and one that I value, or rather than doing the project that everyone wanted me to do, which was to write a book that I would have titled The Black Fantastic, which would have been um, a taxonomy or like sort of a catalog of all the extant African diaspora, science fiction, fantasy, fairy tales, superhero comics, etc., for children and young adults. So people thought that was the project I was working on. Mm. I was less interested in doing that than trying to understand why black characters seemed trapped in certain places within mainstream speculative storytelling and why despite storytellers best efforts sometimes those characters seem to you know fall into the tv trope the black girl always dies or you know sort of the wallpaper best friend you know so i was really interested in understanding that um one more thing is that i was interested in not just understanding the texts themselves. I wasn't just interested in representation within those texts. I wanted to know how young readers and audiences were responding to and thinking about those texts. So like, what would make kids say, you know, ew, Rue is a black girl. I didn't imagine her that way and use the N word. Kids who were born after 2000. Now we can say, well, you know, Racism in society is a thing. You know, Donald Trump is president. Um, racism will always be with us. But I am keenly interested in understanding how things work. So I must be a frustrated engineer, I think, because <laughs> I really like. But instead of opening up a radio or a computer to see how the um the components work. I'm interested in the components of social interaction. And so I turned that training toward looking at texts. So to answer your question, I had to pick texts that I knew inside out. It wouldn't have worked for me to go to um, Avatar fandom or um, to go to, um, gosh, any other fandom because then I would have only been looking at it as a researcher and not as an ACA fan. I would not have been able to have some of the insights or the personal investment that I had in the analysis. So that's why I picked those four, <laughs> because I really like those four stories and wished that they had done more with the black characters in them. Yeah, the the fandoms that sprung up around the book series for, you know, Vampire Diaries and Harry Potter are immense and very deep in how they reached across uh, different spectrums of yes. readers. Just it, it got so many kids reading. Everyone was surprised. They were not expecting that when those books first came out. I remember the surprise, literal shock and awe going, 
wow, kids are reading. We can't keep these Harry Potter books on the shelves. What do we do now? (laughs) (laughs) Two, like by the time you get to book four, book five, kids under the age of 12 are lining up in front of bookstores at midnight with their parents to get the new book. I'm like, Oh, wow. I was just struck by <laughs> nostalgia. Just like for me, the 2010s was the era of the live tweet. The 2000s were the era of those book parties, those midnight mm-hmm. book parties. And then you're reading all night long. Now, I was in my early to mid 20s during the Harry Potter era. But oh, my goodness, it was so um so, so fabulous. Oh, I wanted to say one thing. One reason why I didn't choose any texts by Black authors, um, I had three reasons. One, because I was interested in looking at racism in speculative fiction um, narratives and their associated fandom. So, um, you know, the narratives written by authors who are um, hashtag own voices would operate differently, mm-hmm. necessarily. Two, because of um, their the lack of those, you know, when I first began writing and outlining in 2014, um, you know, since then, over the past six years, we've gotten a wealth of new material, which is why um, I'll have the privilege of being able to follow this up with another book eventually, where I will look at, you know, sort of the realm of Afrofuturism and the Black Fantastic. And then really... Number three is another one of my theses that I'd like to nail on the wall of, you know, um, science fiction and all those responsible. You know, we just don't have as big um, of a fan community around um, POC author text or yes. black text. So there was nothing comparable to a Harry Potter authored by um, a black, you know, author, although we should have had some gigantic, big budget TV series or film around the work of Octavia Butler, which has been out for 20, 30, 40 or more years. And because we don't have that, I was not able to conduct the same kind of analysis. So if I were to put a fifth f- fandom in there, which I, I did consider. Um, actually, one thing I can tell your listeners that I haven't told anyone else before is that the first proto-chapter of The Dark Fantastic was on Mallory Blackman's Knots and Crosses series. So this was an alternate history series. Um, Mallory is was the um, first Black British children's laureate. So she's a super famous English writer. Um, Afro, um, Afro British writer or black British writer. And um, I tried to apply the dark fantastic theory first to her text and I couldn't get it out of peer review. So I sent it in as um, a first book chapter to um, one of our children's literature journals. And, you know, looking back, my colleagues were right. I hadn't baked out the theory yet. And it was because I was applying the wrong lens to the wrong text for the wrong purpose at the time. But, you know, you have to start somewhere. So if I had put in a chapter, a contrasting chapter, you know, about the Knots and Crosses series, then um, it would have been, um, you know, sort of unbalanced. I think there's been a BBC teleplay of it. Oh, I should say what that is really quickly um, before I give it, turn it back to you. Um, the Knots and Crosses series is an alternate history where black people conquered the world instead of people of European de- descent. So mm-hmm. African 
descended people. So they had colonized Great Britain. And so they were on top. So that's the knots and crosses universe. And knots and crosses is the um, UK term for the game we know here in the States as tic-tac-toe. So if you're thinking about X's and O's ah. and so, yeah, crosses or the X's yeah, right. are, yes, yeah, sl- was the slang term for black people and knots, you know, or O's or nothing, you know, um, was a term for white folks. But um, that text, for many different reasons, it's an, it's an unwieldy one to analyze. And um, U.S. audiences really didn't take to that series. They, you know, they published it over here and it really didn't go very far, but it was a bestseller in, um, England. And, um, I think, um, uh, in some, some other countries, but most people over here, I've never heard of it. So that's why I chose the books that I did. <laughs> I will add myself to that list of people who had never heard of knots and crosses either. <laughs> <laughs> See, but you've heard of BBC's Merlin, haven't oh, you? Yes, I have. Thank I, you. I, that, I am... was, that was it. <laughs> I... That's it. That's it. You know, and one thing I wanted to just say is that, you know, I think, you know, now that we're in the woke era, I mean, uh, you know, there have been some people who've wondered, you know, about the politics of a project on race and the imagination with an amazing, you know, cover by the super talented Paul Lewin, who might wonder why the focus on white author text by a black author. But because I was interested in what kid readers were doing or teen readers were doing and what, you know, youth and young adults and fandoms were doing, um, we read everything. We're omnivores like everyone else. Mm -hmm. We are reading um, own voices books, but, you know, we still are reading mainstream speculative fiction as well. We're still watching it. We want to include, we want it all. We want inclusion in the mainstream and we also want um, platforms for our own creatives. So just wanted to some of that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's uh, it's completely understandable. You're, you're always looking for that story where it's easy enough for you to feel a part of. Yes. Uh, it, it's it's similar to it's like I hadn't actually thought about it until I think after the first time I went through like the first chapter of your book. I'm like, huh, that explains a whole lot. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I saw Star Woo! Wars in the theater, you know, when it I guess a year after it came out because it was actually still in theaters for a year and a half. People don't remember that. That movie was in first run theaters through... Mm-hmm almost the end of 1978. Wow. Yeah. I didn't see it until September 78. (laughs) But by then I had already seen Battlestar Galactica and I was running Battlestar Galactica fan fiction ideas through my head, you know, the second or third episode by, and it didn't dawn on me until I was watching, until I was reading through your book. I'm like, huh, Mm -hmm. Battlestar Galactica had, black people front and center and star wars kind of didn't until the second movie hmm. yes hmm. absolutely yes that's exactly it you know same thing with um uh star trek over star wars for some of us who mm. are black women you know almost every star trek series has had a prominent black woman character starting with you know um the queen nichelle nichols um lieutenant uhura in the 1960s and i mean of course now we have michael burnham on discovery and even on the new picard series there's michelle hurd's you know character raffi who is right there on the ship with him so 
um, contrast that with Star Wars, which I love, which I adore. I was mm-hmm. in the womb for the first movie, so <laughs> it came out. My mother says she says it counts because I was I was I was minus three months when <laughs> Pope, or you know, when, when that came out, and I was there. She was like, "You were there. You were there." And then I've gone um, every other opening weekend except for The Force Awakens. For some reason, I didn't go opening weekend, but I went to every other opening weekend. But anyway, um, I love Star Wars, but I'm much more into Star Trek because, you know, it really is one of those few mainstream old science fiction franchises where I have mirrors and not just, you know, the mirror universe, but I have actual mirrors as um, first a black girl and, you know, now as a black woman, it's it's definitely going to be a fandom that I can age into. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, of course, I've been part of so many other fandoms or, you know, I've read and loved so many other um, science fiction and fantasy series where, you know, um, I did not see myself. So I love um, Tolkien and high fantasy. I didn't see myself in much of that, but um, I still consider the Silmarillion one of my comfort books. Whenever it looks like the world's going to end, I'll turn to that sort of elevated prose and, you know, sort of that, you know, mythic storytelling. Mm -hmm to comfort me. And um, so I don't need mirrors all the time. And I think I speak for a lot of marginalized people, you know, sometimes um, folks misunderstand and they think we're narcissistic and only want to see ourselves all the time. We want to be centered all the time, but you know, it'd be cool to be there or present sometimes without dying or without just, you know, being a non-speaking character on the side or just someone um, there to serve the plot. It'd be cool to have some agency and some humanity. Yeah, and then the, there's a there's a certain irony of saying, well, if you want to see yourself in everything, I'm like, you already see yourself in everything. <laughs> Why can't we have a little bit of that? You know, yes. seriously. I mean, it, the early, it didn't register to me until many years later a lot of the early space operas i was reading it was like it's all boys yeah <laughs> it's yes. it's all boys it's all men they're all white i'm like yes. there's no women <laughs> there's no people of color there's barely any aliens and they're just there to be shot <laughs> i'm like what's wrong with this and and people wondered why I gravitated toward I mean literally I was maybe 10 years old reading a series called Space Cat (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) oh yeah and there's there's just so many there's so many stories that can be told the the space is there but the opportunity isn't of the the recent hubbubs about diversity in publishing oh boy don't remember where that started (laughs) but the fact that someone posted out on twitter saying i was at a meeting of publishing executives where somebody said they don't recruit from historically black colleges and universities because they are assuming from the jump that students who attend those schools cannot afford to live in new york city and i'm like i'm like yeah that's something you can actually, you know, work on changing yourself, but you didn't think you needed to. There's, <laughs> right, right. Speaking, listen, speaking as a graduate of a historically black university, Florida A&M mm-hmm. University, 
on the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee, Florida, 1887. Have to give a shout out. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, the, you, I, I really chuckle at them for saying that. I'm tenured at Penn. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? <laughs> to think that the students are poor and or, this is what they didn't say, can't do the work. There are so many people mm-hmm. who think I went to an HBCU because I couldn't get into a top elite or predominantly white institution. And that is not the case. I was a national merit finalist. I could have gotten in, particularly because I'm Generation X still. And, you know, there weren't the attacks against affirmative action. We were being recruited. But, you know, there was a little show called A Different World that those of us who were born in the 70s, you know, we were teenagers (laughs) who grew up with that. And so that really influenced us. We wanted to go and find Hillman, you know. So, I mean, if you, you know, I mean, that was just... they made it look cool. All those folks, Dwayne Wayne, Whitley, and the gang, they made it look cool. And so, you know, I chose an HBCU. I'm very proud of that choice. But that just goes to show how you only have a single story if you only get a few perspectives or you only let a few voices set the tone. And um, we see that with so many of the publishing controversies. Um, you know, there's a lot of tone policing. You know, there's there's just been a lot that has happened over the past six years. Really, it's been six years. So when I, around the time I turned um, in my proposal for The Dark Fantastic, um, that was the spring of 2014. Um, so much happened. And I talk about that in the first chapter of um, the book where, um, you know, um, the genesis of the We Need Diverse Books movement um, famed black children's writer, Walter Dane Myers, um, giving us his beautiful swan song, where are all the children of color in children's books? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which was the last editorial he wrote before he passed away. Um, you know, so there are just so many different things that have happened over the past six years. So that when I turned in my book, um, the first um, version of it, I turned it in a week before Donald Trump was elected president. So I think it was like November 1st or 2nd, 2016. Then it was, you know, then you have revisions and, but you can't rewrite the book. And then it comes out, you know, almost three years later, so, or two and a half years later, the world has just been changing so rapidly since then until I can't even imagine what things are going to be like next year, let alone, you know, if we think about another three to six years from now, I I can't even imagine the kinds of conversations we're going to be having. But yet, as I keep saying on the speaking circuit, when people ask me, well, you know, hasn't the problem been solved now (laughs) that we have Black Panther, Children of Blood and Bone, um, you know, sort of a race-bent adaptation of Wrinkle in Time, which was a text with white characters, you know, isn't the problem solved? And I, I would argue that until the dark fantastic cycle, which I identified in the book, is broken, no, the problem won't be solved. I mean, we have always had these times throughout U.S. and world history when the rest of us have been in vogue so to speak. And then we fall out of favor, you know, the moment passes and then publishing and entertainment close up for us again and we disappear um, back to the margins. So we'll just see if this time is different. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that 
the the there will be there would be a complete fall back from the the popularity so to speak just because the bigger markets for this entertainment are not in the US anymore um those there everybody is chasing the china the the chinese box office there's bringing yes. more chinese stories here they're mm-hmm. they're trying to or starting to center more culturally diverse more for lack of a better word ethnically diverse you're starting to explore the communities mm-hmm. that have been sort of glossed over right here yes <laughs> yes exactly and, and it's it it's it's happening fast, but it's also happening slow at the same time. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I do think that, you know, nothing ever stays the same. The world is constantly changing. But, um, you know, I'm just wondering how those changes are going to shape up and how how that cycle that I've identified that, you know, everyone has been sort of exposed to through their early reading how and when that might be subverted. Mm. I mean, I will welcome it. You know, I'm hopeful that people will enjoy reading all these wonderful black girl magic stories as much as they have enjoyed reading the science fiction classics. I do think that, you know, right now we have a world where everyone wants to join in and engage in mainstream speculative maintain mainstream speculative world. So um, everyone is invited to play in these big um, billion dollar franchises. But then everything the rest of us do is seen as niche. And so right now I'm wondering, you know, are there people who are not like me, who love Octavia Butler as much as they love Star Trek and are as obsessed with the world she's created, you know? So I'm wondering about that, or maybe a better um, analogy analogy there would be, you know, um, are there people as obsessed with Octavia Butler as, you know, there are people obsessed with um, George R. R. Martin's work who, you know, I've read all Mm -hmm. of um, a song of ice and fire Maybe again, these are imperfect one to one correspondences, but I, I find that those of us from the margins do a lot of imaginative acrobatics in order to, <laughs> you know, read and write and engage and play in mainstream speculative, but then there isn't the reciprocity when it comes to others imagining themselves into our positions. Although people have sort of critiqued my um, theory of restoring, where I talk about how young people in fandoms are sort of reading and writing the self into existence, um, you know, race Sprint frozen, black Hermione, et cetera, et cetera. You know, several of my um, black feminist friends have <laughs> critiqued that because they said, well, you know, it matters, you know, um, it matters that, you know, it's different if a black kid is imagining themselves into a mainstream position, um, but it wouldn't be okay if, you know, um, maybe a white reader or viewer is imagining themselves as black, you know? So I, you know, they're, they've given me a lot more to think about, but 
as someone who's obsessed with thinking about reading and fan cultures and audiences, you know, I'm just wondering about, you know, that point of empathy so that, you know, um, the realms that we go to play in within our imagination. So it's not so much work for the rest of us. Like we, it's like we have to work mm-hmm. and to fit in and others, you know, <laughs> they have all kinds of mirrors, all kinds of doors, all kinds of windows. And so, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Who 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 was the publisher? I think LL McKinney called them out uh, this week <laughs> or last week. She uh, with the they 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 republished or were going to republish a bunch of uh, classic science fiction and fantasy novels with yes. people of color on the cover, and she's like, "This doesn't really help because the people inside the books still aren't." <laughs> and you know what? Um, one of the um, authors, I can't remember who, but um, one of my author friends sent it to me because I was swamped under with campus interviews. Uh, we were interviewing um, candidates. Um, but she sent me um, one author's response, and I, I, I recognize it as a response of frustration, where she said, you know, I blame all of you who clamored for Black Hermione for this situation. <laughs> and I understand it. So this was a Black author who said that. And I understand it because, you know, um, being having been friends with many of these authors and also as someone who is... Um, hard at work trying to finish up the rewrite of my own, you know, YA fantasy novel. I get it. You know, it must be so frustrating to see all these people who are clamoring for inclusion in these mainstream narratives while you're trying your your best to write your heart out and to create all this um, wonderful stuff that doesn't need to be race-bent and people are gravitating one way or the other. I mean, we could talk about the role of marketing. But <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up um, L.L. McKinney, who I love, because she actually does, in her work, what Barnes & Noble's you know, sort of diverse covers failed to do. She actually wrote a Black Alice. So mm-hmm. I highly recommend her urban fantasy novels, um, A Blade So Black and A Dream So Dark, yep. where, you know, she just really, and what she does is the very thing I talk about in The Dark Fantastic, where, you know, if you remember in the Bonnie chapter, I talked about how the story of the character changed when the race changed. So in the novels, Bonnie McCullough was white, and then on the television show, Bonnie Bennett was black and her whole story changed, including who she ended up with because, you know, she was a black girl now. The same thing happens in LL's capable hands. However, she is able to do this amazing black feminist speculative storytelling where she makes black Alice work as a black girl, as a black character. Um, in those stories. So she sort of, it's sort of like a, a swashbuckling Buffy, the vampire slayer, like wonderland world. She calls it the nightmare verse. And um, I just highly recommend those books. So she is doing, it must've been so frustrating for her to see that headline. So I don't blame <laughs> her for, I've left Twitter. I used to be very active. I seen it. We're Twitter mutuals, but I would have loved to have seen it because I know she clapped back and she need, you know, she has people should, you know, Barnes and Noble could have elevated her work and others who have done, you know, diverse retellings of classic stories instead of um, promoting these tired, dated works and I can say that now I'm sure some of your listeners are rolling their eyes but you know okay I'm gonna flex here I'm gonna you know I have a PhD in English and education I love you know I couldn't have done that without 
enjoying reading and actually loving a lot of the canon. I've taught my share of the canon. You know, I taught high school for five years, so I've done that. Um, but I still I'm very passionate about understanding the world that young fans and readers and audiences of color and other kids and teens and young people from the margins are facing out here. Yeah, and it's I, yeah I hope people are finding uh, LL's uh, Alice books because like, I interviewed her last year oh, when cool. the Dream So Dark came out and that was, those stories are so rich yeah. and fun. Yes, her, she's, you know, as, as irreverent, her voice, her, that irreverent voice, that amazing voice that you see um, in all of her social media, it's like, you need to be reading, I'm telling, I'm telling your audience, they need to be reading her books, because, mm -hmm. I mean, read her books, buy two of each, <laughs> give them to your friends, give them to, not just for the kids in your life, I mean, I cannot wait, I really do hope that they get adapted, because I, she is so fan, that is so fangirlable, I was, you see me stumbling for a word, it's like, <laughs> I need a Nightmare Verse fandom, like, it would have been, or it should be, a CW show or a freeform show or something where, and I, I just know that, you know, a, a huge fandom with fan art would spring up around those stories. Yeah, I could definitely see that on uh, freeform or CW easily, <laughs> easily. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times the, the cycle. Yes. Can you break that down? Like tell tell my listeners what that is and each step in that cycle that you're hoping gets broken. Oh, I would love to. Thank you so much. That's a perfect opening to sort of sum up um, what I wrote about. So I'm actually going to pull up a note that I have. I'm telling on myself. I'm cheating a little <laughs> bit. I've actually published um, last year my first post dark fantastic. Um, critical piece. Um, it's titled Notes Toward a Black Fantastic, Black Atlantic Flights Beyond Afrofuturism in Young Adult Literature, where I'm really trying to think about geography and where science fiction and fantasy are going. But I actually had to, as a task for this, I had to, for the first time, summarize what the dark fantastic was about in a paragraph. So I'm going to paraphrase that <laughs> paragraph, and I actually talk about the cycle. So in The Dark Fantastic, I explore the way that race operates in the popular fantastic traditions of the West, primarily within mainstream speculative transmedia that is produced in the U.S. and the U.K. and marketed to youth and young adults all over the world, proposing that Black characters in such stories are trapped in a cycle that I call The Dark Fantastic, my analysis of popular young adult media reveals pernicious movement through four stages, spectacle, hesitation, violence, and haunting. Specifically, I argue that black girl characters are interpolated in these imagined story worlds as monstrous, invisible, and always dying. Their frightening fates mirror the realities of imperiled black girlhood in the real world. Only through emancipation, either through black feminist storytelling or agentive youth and fan restoring, can such characters escape the cycle. 
So each part of the cycle um, comes from or have their genesis in Todorov's influential theory um, that he wrote about in his 1973 book, The Fantastic, A Structural um, Approach to a Literary Genre. So um, a lot of us who are thinking about the fantastic turn back to that text. And what he did was he identified um, the that the the definition of something that is fantastic or speculative, you know, another word for the same thing would be a point of hesitation. So there is something that breaks in the narrative that signals to the reader, the viewer, the listener, or, you know, whoever is interacting with that text or story, that this is not the world that we know. This is not the known world. So if it's a portal quest fantasy, usually that's some pages or even a few chapters into the story. So a portal quest fantasy is something like Harry Potter um, or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you start in the world that we know and the kid enters some kind of portal, it enters an unknown world. I'm, I love portal quest fantasies, and that is <laughs> where my book you know, I'm actually writing one or trying to. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, you know, there's also full world immersive fantasy. So an immersive fantasy, you know, that point of hesitation is when you read the first page and you don't understand a word that's being said or what's going on because the um, narrator just plunges you straight into the story. So, or expects you to you know, understand, okay, like this is just the world and this is how it is. Children of blood and bone is like that. Mm -hmm. It immerses you from the first page and, you know, begins using terminology, place names, um, magic that you may be unfamiliar with. So there's something that makes you um, hesitate. Before the spectacle, though, I mean, before the hesitation, there's a spec, there's spectacle, there's something that causes that hesitation. And in the dark fantastic, I argue that usually it's race. It's either a racialized character or something that's a stand in for racialized um, fear or racialization. Because really, if you look at the world um, around us and you look at the past half millennium of human history, what else causes human beings to hesitate but the other, the, the unknown other, the unknowable other. And so my cycle begins with the spectacle of seeing that black kid character or teen character in the story. That spectacle makes one hesitate. But then the third stage, violence happens because that hesitation leads to a, a narrative dilemma that has to be resolved. Like you can't, you know, you're, <laughs> the audience has stopped. Sometimes when you're reading the book or you're watching the film or the television show, the characters will stop. In Merlin, King Arthur, the kid who plays King Arthur, literally turns to Merlin when they walk into their the Black Guinevere's cottage, and he <laughs> says, "Remember the moment and that." And I said, "I can't believe this. I had to stop it because you know when you're watching it as a casual viewer, it's one thing, but then when you're trying to study the stuff and analyze it, he turns and he says, "I doubt anyone would believe it." And I was like, "Talk about 
breaking the fourth <laughs> wall and completely lampshading my theory. So yeah, like, oh my gosh, you know, it's a black woman. Um, and so usually in our culture, the way that we deal with out of place black people, whether it's in the real world or in the realms of our imagination is that we enact violence upon them. There's some kind of violence. So that's my next stage. And I kept asking my mentors like um, Philip Nell and Farrah Mendelssohn and Michelle Martin and um, just I could continue calling names. I said, am I getting this wrong? Am I getting this wrong? Because I was sending them draft after draft (laughs) of this theory. They were like, no, actually, you might be on this. Keep going. And then but then I turned to Toni Morrison, who helped me carry the theory home. So I began with Todorov. But I mean, it ended, it ends with Toni Morrison's playing in the dark because she says, yeah, you know, in playing in the dark, she says, yes, you know, there's this violence, but that violence haunts all of U.S. literature. It haunts literature. And I said, well, not just U.S. literature, because the West is more than us. The colonial encounter was more than us. Enslavement was more than us. So I I think I write in the book that these black girl characters have to die either a, 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 a living death or a social death, but they can't die. So they end up haunting the story in some way. And that is just commiserate with um, Morrison and everyone else who's written about, you know, race and the literary imagination after. And so then, you know, you only break out of this cycle if you can completely imagine something different. And that is my fifth imagine state. It's almost like a noble gas. You can almost never, you know, almost never occurs in nature. It's emancipation. You know, can the character be emancipated? So, I mean, one example of an emancipated character is, um, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of her name, but uh, my um, author crush is um, uh, Nora N.K. Jemison. Mm-hmm. Um, so Broken Earth. I mean, I think she is everyone's author crush. Um, <laughs> but thinking about um, Esun, in the Broken Earth trilogy. And I have not listened to the audiobook. So nerds who are listening, I know they're like, she pronounced that wrong. Okay, I'm going to listen to the audio. <laughs> okay. I'm a traditional reader. I was reading that. But that is a completely just beyond, be, beyond liberated character. I mean, I thought I was in love with Lauren Olamina from Octavia's Parables, but I mean, I completely want to be um, as soon when I grow up because I mean, oh my friggin' God, that is the kind of character that I would love to see um, in black YA fantasy or, or science fiction. And we don't quite have her yet. Now, Zelie from Children of Blood and Bone may be going there, um, you know, halfway through Children of Virtue and Vengeance. But, you know, we have some others. But I'm just thinking about ways in which black girls can find liberation through story that might be elusive in the real world. I think we need that. Am I? Okay, I am quite sure I saw something recently Mm -hmm. that the Broken Earth trilogy is coming to Netflix and George R.R. Martin is helping produce it. 
Yes, bless him. That's why I do not hold George Martin responsible for the debacle that was the last season of Game of Thrones. George didn't do oh, that. Don't do that. get me started on those last two that. seasons. I, I know, know who to blame. I can yes. break. I can break <laughs> that down from a literary, from a fan <laughs> point of view, from a writing point of view. Oh my goodness, those guys! Oh, those guys messed it up. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And I, I just don't. As um, someone who loves letters, as a critic, as a professor, as an author myself, I just, my heart goes out to George because I know the ending of the HBO series is not the story he wanted to tell. That's mm -hmm. why, you know, he's a good egg. He's a completely good egg because he's how we're going to get, um, or, you know, we're going to get the adaptation of The Broken Earth. And he's also adapting for HBO Who Fears Death by Nettie Acorn. Yes, yes. Yes. So I am thrilled and I would rather have all of that instead of Game of Thrones um, prequels. Um, and I was obsessed with Targaryens because, I mean, duh, dragons. <laughs> um, but I'm sorry. I just I really wish that maybe David and Dan had turned the reins of the series over, gone off to do Star Wars. And then they could have hired new and fresh showrunners yeah. to carry it home but you know it, it my my thesis is that their their treatment of those last two seasons of game of thrones runs far deeper and they're it's more petty than yeah it, uh, yeah they did it on purpose oh no i don't want to think about that but i know it's probably true especially with the confederate thing you know like that's I, why I'm, yeah, I'm so naive. I usually like to think that, you know, um, I like to blame systems and structures and not individual, sinister individuals. Like, you know, like I don't like to personify evil outside of stories, which is why I think um, I am naive and optimistic enough to like science fiction and uh, of a certain kind, like space opera and fairy mm. tales and fantasy. So, you know, I like clearly identifiable good and bad guys, but, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. like, yeah. But, you know, then when you see this, like, you know, we're just going to crash the greatest televised fantasy series that we've gotten to date. You know, we're just going to crash and burn it on purpose just because, yep. uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to believe, but there's too much evidence out there in exactly. their own yeah. words oh. over the past, I'm guess even since season one that they did that. Yeah. Anyway, that's <laughs> that know. is another a that is a position. that is an argument, a thesis for another time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> going back to children and going back to children's fiction. Yeah. <laughs> there is actually literally just discovered that uh, there's a a new collection out, a new short story coming out in March, sort yes! uh, called "The Phoenix Must Also Burn." Yes. Yes, it's, a phoenix first first must burn. First yes. must burn, right. And it's 16 yeah. stories of black girl magic, resistance, and hope. And if if I remember correctly, all of the authors are female or women? Yes, they are all black women. So I am so thrilled because these were, I mean, I believe I know or have met the vast majority of these women. So, I mean, we have just about everyone who is writing um, science fiction and fantasy for um, young adults right now. Mm -hmm. um, I did not know that Amari, I believe, is she? I wonder if it's the same Amari who is the pop singer who's in the book. 
I because do not so, know. That would be really. I did. Cool. I did. I did uh, notice Rebecca Roanhorse because her yes. Trail of Lightning and Storm of Locust. Those are amazing, amazing books. That's something I'd like to see on Netflix. Yeah, um, I do want to. Um, yes, um, there's also um, Danielle Clayton's The Bells. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, Danielle Clayton um, has created a world based on the um, balls, the famous balls of 19th century New Orleans. And I really do um, wish more people were reading that story because, um, you know, it's an amazing treatise on um, thinking about beauty and, um, you know, I mean, not since Scott Westerfeld's, um, you know, sort of classic uh teen sci-fi story uglies Mm -hmm. have we really had something quite as considered so um i think you know it it pairs really nicely with westerfeld's uglies um the bells and its sequel the everlasting rose and i really wish um you know um i could see the world that she created on screen or you know i mean all these have room for adaptation i mean just give me a give me a channel (laughs) <laughs> give me a channel now do you have any special insight to this collection because i you said that you had been invited to I, contribute oh, I but... was, um patrice is so kind so patrice is um a triple threat she is an <laughs> editor she is an agent and she is an you know an author and so um when i first so i have an agent who is you know pretty cool And um, when I announced that I had signed with this um, particular agent, um, you know, he immediately got um, a note from Patrice, you know, um, inviting me to be part of the collection. But unfortunately, unlike these wonderful, amazing authors, um, I am but a novice and The Dark Fantastic wasn't yet out. I was finalizing all my edits and um, I was also waiting on word for tenure and promotion to associate professor. So it was just, um, you know, it, the stars didn't align for me to um, perhaps submit my work for consideration. But um, I, as um, someone who has been longing for stories like these for our kids, um, particularly our girls, I am so thrilled to see this collection um, out and in folks' hands. So um, I have not yet gotten a chance to read it. It just arrived. Um, I'm hoping that I'll be able to um, add it to my docket to read sometime soon. Um, I did want to um, plug one book that's coming out this spring that I'm super excited about. Um, it's called um, Ray Bearer, and it's by Jordan Ifuiko. Um, and it is another West African fantasy story with a strong girl lead. And um, I was invited to blurb it. Um, by the publisher. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, nice. I think it's really a new day. I mean, Tristan Strong um, punches a hole um, in the sky. One, that's, um, I should say more about that one. So it's an, um, it is um, part of Rick Riordan's Presents. So uh, Rick Riordan, you know, mm-hmm. Percy, you know, Percy Jackson Chronicles. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, um, has this um, series where diverse authors are writing, um, you know, stories that are like that for kids, you know, from all backgrounds. Yeah, and yeah. 
Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky um, is um, the latest um, winner of the Coretta Scott King. I believe it won a Coretta Scott King um, Honor Award. So, um, and it's the first book like it, I believe, to win that award. Usually those awards, the Coretta Scott King, you know, which is the most prestigious award for um, Black authored um, children's and YA books in the United States. Usually those books, um, those awards go to historical texts, you know, um, those uh, books that are meant to teach us something, which is very important because, you know, like I say in the dark fantastic, those books are like, you know, eating your vegetables. You have to <laughs> eat vegetables. You can't just have, you know, um, meat and sweets and, you know, all kinds of bad things. But, um, it, it seems, um, to, to be the harbinger of a new day that a book like Tristan Strong, which is just so much fun, um, is also seen as, you know, um, worthy of this very prestigious award. Yeah, I think I had read an early book in that series, uh, Dragon Pearl by Yu mm -hmm. Lee, which was mm -hmm. really, really delightful. Yes. Um, there's another author. I know I'm going to mangle his name. Tochi Onyabuchi. Yes. Yeah. War Girls and Riot Baby. What do mm -hmm. you weigh in on those? Have you read those? Oh, yes, absolutely. He is probably <laughs> one of the most um, interesting people I met in 2019. Yeah, he he did um, War Girls um, recently, which was delightful. Um, he also um, wrote um, before that, I don't think enough people read his first books, um, Beasts Made of Night and its sequel. And um, I mean, because I was... Um, I think I only found his name on a few lists or it would come up on searches, but I mean, he's just incredibly thoughtful and, and smart. And he's one of the um, early black men who were able to break through in this genre. So writing, you know, um, fantasy and science fiction with black boy protagonists mm -hmm. or teens. And I mean, that's, so it kind of makes him, you know, almost a unicorn. I mean, although even the ones who are writing black girls are unicorns. And of course, we need far more black queer um, protagonists, as well as black disabled protagonists in the in the genre. Yeah, I think I mean, I literally just got Riot Baby. And I haven't read it yet. But the description intrigued me so much. I'm like, I oh, have yeah. to read this. I have to read this. I mean, he's he's just super interesting, um, you know, and thoughtful. Like, you know, um, I really do think, though, that one of the things I advocated for in this last academic piece that I wrote, I think that we can begin to start thinking about the different kinds of black speculative fiction for kids and teens we're starting to get. So I think that um, it is very useful to know, you know, um, sort of West African fantasy as its own category. So, um, because I do think that, you know, the black immigrant experience is something that should be deeply respected and learned from. Um, I do think that some of that, those stories are um, distinct from black Caribbean, uh, you know, speculative fiction for kids. So um, another amazing author 
Tracy Baptiste has written the Jumbie series, which is based on, um, you know, she's from Trinidad um, and it's based on the folklore from there. And it's sort of a dark fantasy slash horror series, you know, that kind of it's nice and creepy. Mm. And um, it's something that would be great for, you know, people um, who have kids in the upper elementary through lower high school grades. And um, I'd love to see her have more attention for that series because um, that's very innovative. Um, you know, we have, um, I mean, there's just um, different um, different ones. I really think that Nettie Okorafor's stories for young people do a great job bridging, you know, sort of um, that first generation, um, you know, um, Black immigrant experience. Um, Akata Witch, which is yes. another story yes. I would love to see adapted, is definitely... Um, a case in point. Um, Tristan is one of the um, first, I applaud it because it's a black US fantasy. And he was such a mentoring text for me, or Tristan was such a mentor text for me as I complete my own story, because I was trying to not necessarily put myself in a box by just imagining a black US story. But when I first set out to write many, many years ago, I was thinking, well, you know, there's nothing really in the black American experience that would be fodder for science fiction or fantasy unless you're Octavian. I wasn't quite, you know, <laughs> like I was, I'm not a MacArthur genius, right? Like, so, you know, one of the things I, I remember mentioning in frustration to someone in my twenties is that one shouldn't be, have to be an MacArthur award-winning genius in order to write, you know, magical or whimsical stories um, just rooted in, you know, the U.S. And so Tristan provides just such an amazing, amazing template to do that kind of storytelling. And we're seeing more and more and more and more of that work getting signed. I mean, I really applaud the black millennials, um, you know, the African diaspora of mil millennials who have just exploded like a supernova out into the scene and just created this space and all these possibilities. And I am super duper thrilled to see it. I mean, there's just no, I mean, it was tough, you know, to try to get publishing and entertainment to imagine this stuff when we, you and I were younger, but I welcome, you know, I'm not dead yet. You know, um, <laughs> I, you know, I welcome this, this new um, storytelling landscape. All, you know, and I also, you know, along with black creatives taking the helm of things, I mean, can I just mention um, the amazing um, Hanalee Culpepper, who is at the helm of the new Star Trek Picard. So I think we, like I said, I want it all. Like I want <laughs> us to have our own stories, but look at this, you know, the, you know, the, the mothership of them all, like, you know, one of the oldest continuing franchises, I think maybe, is it older than Doctor Who? Maybe Doctor Who's older, you know, one of the oldest continuing science fiction franchises in, in the world and a black um, woman director is like, you know, at the helm of it. She ran, I think, the first three or four episodes of it. It was the first time in franchise history. So I want it all. I want to, I want to have Children of Blood and Bone on screen. I want Ryan Coogler doing his thing with Black Panther. And I want to be able to go back to the truck of my childhood and, you know, be inside a Black woman's imagination there, too. So I want it all. I'm greedy. <laughs> well, you said you had gotten off of Twitter. You escaped mostly. Where yes. can people find 
your writing? Or do you have a place where you list these authors and their works that people should check out for their kids? Well, the answer right now is yes and no, <laughs> but um, actually it's yes and yes. Okay, if you would like daily recommendations of um, children's and young adult books, I highly recommend that you travel to my related Twitter site. So I um, changed Ebony Teach to updates only, but my graduate students and I run another account titled Healing Fictions. So healing, like, you know, getting well, healing fictions, all one word. We have over 3,000 followers and they are so faithful. They keep, they tweet out a new diverse recommendation for children's and young adult books every single day at noon. So they keep it going and wow. um, they interact. They're really, you know, I mean, they're just, they're, they're amazing. They keep it going. Um, we have lists, we build lists. And so that is where, yeah, I spun that off from my main account because I tend to get very political. <laughs> um, and I spun it off from my main account back in um, 2016. So around January, 1st of January, 2016. So we're, we're going strong. We're four years in. We're going strong, and um, that is a place where you can get um, the best of children's literature uh, um, every day. Um, and then I have a new personal website and blog, ebonyelizabeththomas.com. And um, so I wanted to have a space that was separate from my pen and academic websites. Um, I've begun a blog titled A Year of Thursdays. Right now I'm just spitballing over there. I'm not really doing much that's literary or science fiction-y quite yet. Um, but I plan to do so very soon. And then once my, um, novel sells, I'm planning on putting out a regular newsletter because I do, um, quite a bit. I also have some other projects on, um, in the hopper, including, um, a science fiction and fantasy for youth and young adults related column that's pending at an outlet that you may or may not know. And unfortunately I don't ha I haven't inked it yet, so I can't quite announce it, but yeah, I have that going. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I will definitely have links to that. I'm going to subscribe to Healing Fictions on Twitter because, like I said, Twitter can sometimes be a dumpster fire, but it is my lifeline to the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, I have been on there um, continuously for five and a half years, and it had just gotten to the point where I felt you know, I needed a break. So I definitely won't be in, um, on Twitter in 2020, except for updates. Um, I do have another Twitter account though. So I have the healing fictions that my students help me run. And then, um, I have Eb watches Trek for all things <laughs> Star Trek. And I've definitely been over there. So I like do a weekly tweet, live tweet. Although, you know, unfortunately we don't, the synchronous tweets are like no longer a thing because everything's so streaming. But um, yeah, I'm, you know, it's, it's delightful. Um, I could just be over there, just do my um, Trek thing. Um, I am chilling um, in my picture at San Diego Comic Con on the account with um, Nichelle Nichols. Um, nice. Um, who is who is beloved I it, meeting her was just such a highlight of my you know uh science fiction fan life and so um yeah so those are places that you can find me around the web and yeah just stay tuned I hope to have more for everyone soon have you uh 
ever gone back and done like rewatches of like you know Next Generation or the original series or Deep oh, Space constantly. Nine? constantly yeah trek is a blanket so i will have to confess um my um i really grew up with trek so i grew up with um first of all the original series was always on in the Mm -hmm. 80s i try to explain that to even millennials like they don't quite remember the world before cable when the regular stations were just trying to fill space because there wasn't you know Everything was in a syndication. So anyway, it was always on. And I remember liking some episodes, you know, because I was so small. And then I grew up with the next generation. Mm -hmm. And then I would catch slices of Deep Space Nine. But because it was serialized, I didn't quite get it. So it was like for many younger generation Xers. When I really got into it was during the DVD era you know, so you could finally get DVDs of seasons and watch them. And then the streaming era. So I, over the past, you know, really Trek has been the fandom out of all the many ones I've been part of. And I've been active in about eh, about a dozen where I've actually um, had roles, written fan fiction. But one thing about Trek is it really helps me think through my life as a professor, because being a research a uh, professor really is like being a starship captain. So no, no, really like at any given time I have like, uh, there are about a dozen people who's like the next step in their future depends on what I do, what I decide, whether or not I stay in touch with them. So it's managing not only someone's intellectual trajectory and mentoring, you know, managing and mentoring intellectual trajectories, but there's also an interpersonal element where, okay, this person, I haven't heard from them in a week. Okay. We need this part for the project. Okay. The grant is going there. And so I think that I really, I always, you know, I always loved Trek, but I became obsessed with it, you know, over the past decade of becoming a professor. I see why so many scientists and engineers are just firmly in that fandom, because it really is not only imaginative escape, but it really does help you understand some of the psychology in leading something like that, you know, an exploration vessel. Well, same thing as, you know, um, leading a research team or, you know, trying to do something new. So, yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, the dark fantastic is a wonderful resource that people should have at their fingertips. If they're doing anything with young adult fantasy, uh, storytelling with uh, marginalized populations. And like I said, I highly recommend it. It's available wherever books are sold. Is it, is it an audiobook too, or just a, yes. Oh, really? It is in three formats. We have a hardcover, we have an ebook, including Kindle and Nook versions. And, um, Janina Edwards, um, was the wonderful audiobook narrator. The audiobook came out this fall. So all of those are available wherever books are sold. And thank you so much for um, supporting it. And um, I always love hearing from you. I always love seeing where the Dark Fantastic is in the world. People tweet and Instagram photos of, you know, reading it or they'll hold up the copy of the book. So I always love it. It has a lovely cover. Um, <laughs> it you is. Know. So, yeah, it's... I'm very, very pleased with, with the production of it. Yes, we will definitely have links to it all. But once again, thank you for sharing your passion with us today. 
Thank you so much for having me. This was fun and I'll come back anytime you want. Escape Pod is your destination for the best in modern short science fiction. Our intrepid crew of editors and hosts will bring you fun, thought-provoking, in-flight entertainment every week as the pod careens around the multiverse. In the mood for a classic, we've got Anson Mount, also known as Captain Christopher Pike, reading Theodore Sturgeon. Want something a little more up-to-date? Jennifer R. Donahue's Surveillance Fatigue has you covered in every sense. From classic space opera to intimate character drama, from heroic alien pets waiting for their families, to herds of literal Einsteins and the benevolent conspiracy they're hatching, Escape Pod has it all at escapepod.org. So buckle up, because it's story time. Because of how long this one went, not really going to spend a whole lot of time talking about uh, other stuff except go get the Dark Fantastic, go get Phoenix First Must Burn. Uh, We'll have a little something on that later. I have to apologize for this show going out a week later than intended because you can vote through Friday, March 13th. This book should be on the Hugo ballots for this year's awards. Uh, If you can still submit it, do so. That's all I got to (laughs) say. And I, again, I'd like to thank Professor Tobbins, Ebony, for indulging my questions and this discussion, this lovely discussion. I think we talked for a total of about three hours over two separate days. It was glorious, fun for me. And yeah, when her YA novel comes out, I want to read it. I will volunteer to be first in line if necessary. But if you have any questions or comments for us here at Writers After Dark, the place to call, the number to call is 602-635-6976. Or you can send me an email, summer at writersafterdark.com. You can listen to Writers After Dark on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Player FM. And if you could, please leave us a review on Apple or Stitcher. That'll let people know that uh, you're enjoying the show and maybe they should check it out for themselves. You can follow us on Twitter at writeafterdark, that's W-R-I-T-E, after dark. And of course, there's the website, writersafterdark.com. I'd like to thank everyone who is supporting this show and all the others in the Slice of Sci-Fi Playground. If you'd like to add your support, the place to go is patreon.com slash sci-fi. You can sign up and every month... I select someone to receive a perk, be that a a book, a, an advanced copy of a book, a DVD, a Blu-ray. Join in the fun, get free swag. <laughs> if a commitment to a monthly pledge is not in your 
purview these days. You can donate every now and then. The link to use is paypal.me slash sci-fi summer once a year, twice a year, whatever you can do to support the efforts here is greatly appreciated. Every dime helps keep these shows and these websites online. So again, I thank you for your support. And that'll do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, keep looking for your own stories. Thank you.